Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. River Run and you two introduce yourselves uh, for the beginning of this podcast and I'll clip it around like that. Cool. In a Joyce in a Joycean manner, I will. My name is Stella O'Valley and I'm a psychotherapist based in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad. I'm an adolescent therapist in the United States. And what are you two here to speak with me about today? About your deepest, most intimate personal problems. (laughs) And we haven't really gotten there yet, so we got let's begin. <laughs> We're here to um, to tell uh, your audience, I guess, about the podcast that we are starting. It's called Gender: A Wider Lens, and we are going to be discussing all of the topics related to gender and identity from a psychological perspective. Yeah, but me and Sasha are both therapists who have a huge interest in gender, and we just want to bring a wider lens to it open up the discussion and hopefully bring thought-provoking episodes that people can learn about gender and realize that, you know, there are ways forward. There are many ways forward to help gender non-conforming children and young adults and uh, hopefully we'll be part of the, the positive roads forward. Yeah. And it's small. It's like this big. It's really teeny. I'm gathering. I saw what Benjamin did. Yeah. Hello. 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 How are you ladies doing this uh, fine afternoon, evening, and morning? <laughs> We're doing well. Because Stella, you're in Ireland and Sasha's in Texas. Yes. But you are, how did you guys meet? Funny. I don't know. <laughs> Well, definitely it was on the internet. We know that much. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, was it through Lisa Marciano? Well, I know, I tell you one thing I do know is I was doing a thesis uh, on, I was doing a master's and I was doing a thesis on gender dysphoria and I was really anxious to get Sasha's views. And <gasps> yeah, I emailed her and you were really kind because I didn't know you very well. And I said, and I think Lisa had said, maybe Sasha will, as if Sasha would talk to you. And I was like, okay, I'll ask her. And you really put yourself out to talk to me. So th- that's my first major recollection of meeting you. But I, otherwise, I haven't a clue how about you. Well, I think I had seen your film, your BBC oh, film, yeah. Trans Kids, It's Time to Talk, which was excellent. And then I think soon thereafter, maybe Lisa put us in touch for your study, and I was very happy to participate. Like, talk about, maybe talk a little bit about your study, because you were trying to collect information about what therapeutic practices people use for gender dysphoria. Is that right? I'm I'm wondering what you found, or... Oh, oh yeah, I know. I must send it to people. You know the way you don't want to bore people by sending them a massive long study but a few people have asked me so I should send it to people. It was therapist views on on the on the therapeutic approaches to gender dysphoria 
and I uh, I did it a couple of years ago, and I I I might try and get it published because I'm I'm thinking of doing a, a PhD in gender, and the supervisor, the proposed supervisor looked through it and said, yeah, maybe we should try and get this published as part of it. And I was like, OK, this whole PhD is frying my brain. but We'll see. They, yeah. Isn't that what they're designed yeah. to do? Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things that's talked so much up that you're just thinking, am I mad to even start this? So we'll see. Oh, interesting. So you brought up therapeutic approaches to gender dysphoria. What are the, those general approaches that you found? Well, there's loads of different, there's a depth approach where the therapist would go very slowly and figure out where the gender dysphoria might be might be coming from and they might explore it and they might, and some therapists certainly up until quite recently didn't rush for a solution. And so somebody comes in with, with a distress you explore the distress, not necessarily to alleviate the distress, although it could be a byproduct, but to make sure that the client's self-awareness is built up so that they can handle the distress and they can understand the distress and they understand their larger context. Because sometimes you just have to live with it, not necessarily gender dysphoria. So that would be the one I'm most interested in. But there are lots of other approaches. Some people could use a wide range of, let's say, CBT ACT acceptance commitment therapy, DBT, a lot of people are talking about dialectical behaviour therapy, isn't it? Lots of people mm-hmm. are talking about that. Um, and then there's a medicalised model where you just literally seek to medicalise your gender dysphoria. That's another approach that people can use. What What am I missing, Sasha? I'm sure I'm missing loads. You think there's also a kind of more modern um, version of the medicalization model that's not necessarily always medical, which is just affirming the identity and focusing on exploration in, in terms of a social transition, um, which is maybe more geared towards names, pronouns, um, clothing, hairstyles, that sort of thing that tends to lead sometimes into a medicalization as well. Um, but it seems to me that that today most clinicians who are working with gender dysphoria are using an affirmative kind of approach. So was was your study looking at people's response to the affirmative model or was it uh, looking at all of those different approaches? Although I don't seem to see many therapists using like a depth perspective or CBT with gender dysphoria. That was one of the interesting findings that therapists, general therapists, when they see somebody with gender dysphoria, they presume that other therapists know more. Mm. And so they they, they are very quick to refer on to a gender clinic. And then when I kind of explored that subject, as both of you might know, I realized, well, there, you know, a a gender therapist is a self-identified kind of title insofar as it's very easy to be a gender therapist. There's a lot of online courses, there's a lot of workshops, but there is no accredited legislated gender therapist. They do not exist. So they're hmm. kind of, yeah, they're a self-accredited self. So if, if I could call myself, you know, a, 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 I don't know, a, a, a rural expert, 
<laughs> and it's like, yeah, who am I to be a rural? You know, I could call myself a gender expert. I went ahead and I did actually a diploma in one of those courses just to see what are they like. Because so many therapists were referring on all their clients. These are really competent, very, who wouldn't refer on for anorexia. They wouldn't refer on for suicide. They wouldn't refer on for child sex abuse. And the only thing that they seemed to say that I would refer on and quickly was gender. And it seemed to me, yeah, and it seemed to me in the study, it became quite obvious that it was because it wasn't really covered in colleges. It wasn't really covered in education establishments because it's so new. So if you if you've if you got your degree, maybe five, 10, 15 years ago, well, it wasn't covered. There might have been a little bit about lesbian, gay, but there was very little about trans, very little about gender dysphoria. And so they thought out of my depth. And rather than thinking that they could study it themselves and go to workshops and maybe build their own self-knowledge as they do with every other subject, they refer on because they feel, they believe wrongly that there's all these experts out there. Hmm. And it, they were there was a general feeling of amazement that no, they're self-identified experts. An expert is somebody who's done one of many kind of self, what's the word, self-developed courses. These courses are... Fairly basic. I, I certainly thought the course I did was very basic. So, uh, taking that as uh, you know, a starting point, it seems like problems with gender in the psychological field are recent. Is that is that what you're saying? That that psychology as a field, and I, I don't even know if that's the right term. Yeah. That whole field of uh, mental health uh, wasn't really studying or tackling gender issues. Uh, in in its 150-year uh, development? Yeah, I'll give my tuppence worth or maybe two cent worth for your, for your continent. <laughs> I'll give my bit and then see what Sasha says. As far as I could see that, no, if you look at a transgender history, really there have always been a few small, tiny, tiny, tiny number of people who just had this extraordinary need to live in the opposite sex. And so people like James Barry, who was a, a woman who was born a woman in Ireland and she became a surgeon in England and lived as a man and successfully lived as a man until she died. But she 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 was born a woman. So there have been those historically around and up until maybe the 50s, in my memory, uh, it was treated as a sickness, really. And then, you know, when 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 science can do something, science often wants to do something. And around about the 50s or so, science began to be able to offer concepts such as uh, a transition, a medical transition, a surgical transition. And Harry Benjamin was particularly interested in that. He founded the Harry Benjamin Society, which today is called WPATH. And the first, yeah, so it was called, it was called the HBIGDA or something like that. It was the Harry Benjamin Association. And for the first five versions of standards of care for transgender people, it was the Harry Benjamin Association that was putting it out. And then they renamed it WPATH, you know, which is a much more professional sounding name than one guy. It sounds like such an outlier. And he really what was. What does it stand he for? WPATH. Yeah. Go ahead, Sasha. World Professional. Association. Uh, Transgender Health Association. Yeah, that's right. Harry Harry (laughs) Benjamin. It's interesting. Harry Benjamin met Freud and they had a falling out. Freud uh, said to Harry Benjamin, I think you're a repressed homosexual. 
And yeah, I didn't know that. Well, Did if you you're know? not falling out with Freud, I mean, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, that's kind of how you make your name in the business, right? And even more, if, if if Freud doesn't think you're repressed, you're probably doing something wrong as well. But um, yeah, I I, I actually. Fully enough, I buy Freud's version of events. He saw Harry Benjamin as a repressed homosexual, who's who's kind of who's kind of extraordinary urge to transition people seemed very much. He wanted to transition feminine men, mm. and it seemed very driven by that. And if you look at the kind of the rates and the numbers of people who are transitioning, men were transitioning to women in extraordinary numbers and women really weren't getting much of a look in and this was the Harry Benjamin Association. So yeah, I, I do actually buy Freud's version of it. They fell out and they didn't speak and they made this weird pact, both of them, that they wouldn't speak about each other until each other's death. And they kept this. Oh, this is fascinating stuff. You should both look it up. It's really, really interesting. And anyway, Harry Benjamin went off. He he did transition a child who nobody knows what happened. The mother of the child came to Harry Benjamin saying this child really wants to be a girl. And they transitioned the child. But the the, the impact, nobody found out. It's gone. Nobody mm. knows what happened to the child. How did the child fare? Was it mm. excess? Nobody knows that. So you said that if science can do something, it will try to do something. Uh, and then my question was, gender as a study hasn't really been the focus of psychology for the last 150 years. Or you said in the 1950s, they started to think about it. So it's almost like these ideas came from somewhere else or they weren't in the culture Psychologists and the culture at large wasn't really thinking in terms of gender or gender dysphoria until until it came up with the idea of being able to do that. Is that what you're saying? And then afterwards, then psychology started to study uh, these issues of gender or issues around gender. Yeah, I, I'm I'm aware I'm talking too much, so I'm very interested in what you've got to say, Sasha. But I, I kind of think that they had different names for it. They called it transsexualism. They called it gender identity disorder. They've called it lots of different things. And when they named it gender dysphoria, I know um, a lot of experts, the likes of kind of Blanchard and Ken Zucker, said they were doing that to kind of please the, the activists, that's why they called it gender dysphoria, because they were effectively making it more, you know, palatable for society, that they've, they've, they've called it something that is. And they're doing that again with gender incongruence and gender nonconforming. But you could say a lot of conditions have gone through a lot of changes. So people, I think, make more of that than they need to. If you look okay. at, you know, manic depression and then bipolar, there's been lots of changes. What do you think of all this? I'm rambling on. Session. No, no. I mean, everything you're saying is, is important to kind of lay out the history. I think... Um, you know, perhaps there's a little bit of a chicken-egg question here because the fact that psychology as a field hasn't focused on it may also have to do with small numbers of patients presenting with these types of concerns. And when you look at the, the history of, you know, the way the diagnosis has evolved and even the types of surgeons and medical professionals that get involved in gender identity, it tends to be like a small niche. But in recent years, there's been an expansion of both services being provided around gender and also patients showing up at the clinician's office or at the, the surgeon's office requesting assistance for gender-related issues. So, I mean, for me, this this 
brings to mind the the idea of the the symptom pool, which we talk about a little bit in our podcast, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. But the idea that, that well, the symptom pool is an idea that was developed by a psychiatric historian named Edward Shorter, I believe is his name, and he he noticed that. When a culture does not have a conception for a certain type of suffering, that suffering will exist either in very, very small numbers or not really at all. But then once there becomes kind of a label, a definition, a description, a diagnosis that that um, kind of describes a certain cluster of symptoms, then all of a sudden people in the population will actually start exhibiting that symptom cluster. So I'm curious about that in terms of gender dysphoria because even though, you know, historically it gender identity related concerns only seem to affect a very, very small percentage of the population, now there are huge numbers of people experiencing distress around gender or gender identity. And, you know, there, this lifts up the whole argument, like, did they really have gender dysphoria or not? And I think there's a valid discussion to be had around that. I think maybe Stella and I maybe even take a little different perspective on that. But I get very curious, you know, if if somebody can become gender dysphoric for the first time in their adult years or in their childhood years, you know, around adolescence, then, well, what is gender dysphoria? I, I, I just have a lot of questions about what that means. And Stella's absolutely right to point out the evolution of definitions and, and descriptions of what that means. And I think now what we understand as a gender-related concern is very, very broad compared to, like, transsexualism of, like, a few decades ago. That was a very specific thing. And now I think we're talking about something much more general. So as more people in the population request services around this issue, of course, psychology will shift its focus and try to meet that need, um, perhaps creating more of that reciprocal expansion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So backing up just a little bit, why uh, Stella said that you can just call yourself a gender expert. You're both gender experts. What do you uh, base your expertise on? And why did you get into this particular niche? Do you want to go first, Stella? Well, uh, mine was uh, uh, probably the... Well, I, I did have an experience as a kid, a very intense and weird experience as a kid from about the age of three to around about 10. And then it took me a few years to pull out of it. So I had my own gender experience in the back. Now, I became a psychotherapist in my 30s and certainly wasn't because of gender and I wasn't thinking of gender. I had a whole raft of other kind of distress <laughs> to deal with and to come to come through. And so, uh, no, it wasn't really on my mind. And then it became bigger, as I'm sure all three of us noticed in the last 10 years. And I always looked that little bit more than I'd say most people did about trans issues because I always thought that could have been a road I could have taken. So I was very aware of the trans issue, I'd say more than most. And then I I wrote it because I often write for the media. I wrote an article and then when I wrote an article about my own experiences, just saying I'm not sure the narrative really has much space for kids who have gender dysphoria and then grow out of it. Mm -hmm. Then I took the film. And then when I did the film, 
a huge amount of people came seeking help. And I would have been really cold hearted not to try and help those people. So I studied more and added to my kind of knowledge base. And then I did start seeing first, you know, I saw a, a whole range of people, people with trans regret, people who've detransitioned, parents of children who have uh, transitioned, children who are teenage, who kind of got this. It feels very much like the rapid onset gender dysphoria that's often described. And so, yeah, now it's the most compelling subject. I, I think it's fascinating. I can't wait to see the study about why do people become obsessed with gender issues? <laughs> and it, it's it's is it to do with this? It's, it's, the, it's the kind of the extraordinary question of who am I and what is my true self and what is it to be a woman? What is it to be a man? Is it that what just keeps on getting us to come back or is it, there could be a lot of other questions about that. So that's how I came in on it. I don't even know how, oh, I do know how you came in on it, Sasha, far away. <laughs> uh, well, for me, um, I I had always been really interested in sexuality and culture and sexual orientation, which was much more uh, frequently discussed when I was, you know, in graduate school. So I had always fa been fascinated by these topics and studied them. And um, I also, I think my background almost set me up perfectly for this work because I worked with autistic children for many years. Um, I also worked with women and children who were impacted by sexual abuse and domestic violence. And when I worked in that particular setting, the training model for the therapists and the ad advocates there was very much a feminist lens about, you know, power being the main, um, I guess, negotiated element between two people. I mean, that everything was about power and oppression. And I, I took what I thought was valuable from that, but have since kind of moved away from that. But of course, I learned a lot about gender-based violence through that program. And then I worked with um, intellectual disabilities. And in that setting, I got to see all kinds of very interesting clinical presentations, individuals in psychosis and really serious mental health conditions. And then I worked in a middle school. And so I was really immersed in youth culture for many years there. So I started to notice things around gender issues around the mid-2010s, and I was kind of just following it as an outside observer, but I, I thought, thought it was interesting to see all of these kind of news pieces about trans children, which was new. I mean, you'd really not heard about transgender children. And they were very celebratory um, media pieces, and I started to kind of wonder about some of the very stereotypical kind of checklists that people were using to justify like transitioning a child. And of course, I also just had some questions about, well, where do gay kids fall into this mix? Because we know gay children are very gender nonconforming a lot of the time. So I just had my suspicions. And then I ended up finding some blogs written by parents talking about what happens when their child announces a transgender identity out of the blue and they take them to a psychologist expecting to get some sort of thorough assessment and they were getting nothing. They were getting either you better transition your child or they're going to be suicidal or they were getting just affirmation only. And so I, I started to think something is going wrong here in the therapeutic community 
that people aren't aware, first of all, of the very well-documented aspect that social contagion is a real thing. Everybody has always known that. And so all of a sudden, I thought it was odd that therapists weren't at least throwing that into the mix of possible explanations. To rule it out completely seemed very odd. So I just started to become really interested in what was happening and tried to learn everything I could. So I went to the affirmative side to try and understand that material as best as I could because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just missing something or that I wasn't just having like a bad gut reaction to something that was foreign to me. So I immersed myself in the gender affirmative approach and initially found some value in aspects of it. I mean, I had transgender friends and I I could understand some of the importance of like breaking down the gender boundaries and the barriers. But I also started to become really alarmed when I realized there was a medicalization. So I just kind of got really interested in the topic and, and researched everything I could, including more of the kind of traditional treatments for gender dysphoria, which don't necessarily agree with those either, which are encouraging gender conforming behaviors and trying to make someone fit the mold of a more traditional um, man or woman. So I just kind of looked into everything. And I think part of what makes me feel comfortable saying that I specialize in working with gender issues is that I've seen through my own practice that when you give kids time and space and you take a really curious approach about everything going on in their lives, sometimes kids desist. And it has nothing to do with having a certain agenda. It's just being radically open to what exists for the client. And so I've worked successfully with lots of people who have both desisted and continued on in a trans identification. That's a really long answer. <laughs> no, no. Could I come in? Because there's something else when you were talking, I reminded me. In 2015, I released my first book called Cottonwool Kids. And that was very much about anxious parents kind of putting a lot of um, worries and pathology on children. It wasn't only about that, but it certainly studied that. And so I was very, very interested in parenting and I was very, very interested in teenagers because so many cottonwool kids ended up being sent to me. And they were very much of the ROGD personality type if you follow me, but they were coming for, they were coming generally with an, uh, um, eating disorders or, or anxiety or other distresses where, because this was in Ireland, rural Ireland and things. But as I got bigger and more and more ROGD kids came to me, I realised these are all the Cottonwool kids. I feel very strongly that the Cottonwool kids that I've been seeing for years that inspired me to write the book is very much the Cottonwool kids that I'm still seeing, just that they have a different... And that's the symptom pool taken off. Yeah. Could could you expand on that just a little bit? So you're saying one of the uh, patterns uh, that you're recognizing in uh, children who are presenting with rapid onset gender dysphoria or uh, issues around gender that pop up uh, post childhood or uh, yeah, pre adolescent, um, they have there's a certain sort of parenting that's going on. Or um, I, I, there's like I, a background. I'm, people might disagree with context. me, but I do see quite often that we're talking about a lot of anxious parents, a lot of um, um, mm. intense parenting, a lot of um, maybe quite sheltered kids, very loved kids, and very, um, very uh, massive amount of effort into the parenting and into the the family lifestyle. 
but also couple that with an anxious temperament anyway and those children might be prone to the symptom pool and mm. at the moment the symptom pool that's on offer is ROGD in another generation it might have been eating disorders in the 1990s for example mm. so the type of child I would argue that would have got an eating disorder in the 1990s would be very susceptible to having huge gender challenges now it's different era, different symptoms, but very similar kind of personality type. Now, other people, maybe, you know, that you, you get the client that you deserve in life. You know, you get the clients that you attract. <laughs> and so maybe, maybe there, that's what's coming to me because that's what I'm, I'm emanating. You know what I mean? I, I have my style and that's what the parents are perhaps contacting me. So I'm very open to being corrected and to being wrong, but it's something I have noticed. I'm all ears to know whether Sasha is having a similar experience or not all the way over in Texas. Yeah, you know, I'm aware that, that there's always a sampling bias. I mean, first of all, we both work in, in private practice. We are not working through some giant kind of uh, government-funded health service that sees, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Um, so there's a certain kind of parent that is going to find and contact me. First of all, I'm aware that the first kind of filter is who is going online to research these things. You know, I see a few clients pro bono who I knew from previous settings that are totally different uh, socioeconomic demographics and cultural demographics than my main caseload. And I can tell you, I mean, the families that I know from, from that cohort, they're not online Googling their kids' symptoms all the time. You know, they have other ways in their cultural systems to deal with distress and I just happen to have known their children so I'm seeing their kids but the the first kind of thing is like parents who are so invested in their children which is a good thing that mm -hmm. they're also constantly trying to resolve issues which is also I mean it, it's a good thing so that's the first kind of filter of who ends up you know uh, contacting a therapist like myself or like like you um and, you know, I think the, the other side of that coin is that even if a parent had, you know, a slight tendency towards anxiety or a little bit of, I guess, quote, helicopter behavior, way to send a parent into panic mode for a 15-year-old to say, mom, I'm a guy and I need to have a mastectomy next week. You know, like if you were not really that anxious, you're about to be a very anxious parent. So um, mm. I'm aware that... This whole situation can really spin parents into a very destabilized place and bring out a lot of anxiety, even if it wasn't necessarily there before. And one thing I'll also say is that through working with some clients on my caseload, hearing, you know, accounts of their friends who are transitioning or struggling with gender, I'm aware that there is a whole you know, population of young gender dysphoric adults that I would never really see from different backgrounds and different kind of um, family structures. So I, I would guess that ROGD does represent a much broader range than perhaps what we are seeing on our caseloads. But, uh -huh. you know, it's just I have to piece together kind of materials that I'm hearing from clients and things like that. 
I do hope to study, if I do do this study, is to study the difference between childhood onset gender dysphoria and adolescent onset gender dysphoria. Because my, my hunch, but not that I, I have nothing to go on except my own hunch, is that childhood dysphoria could be from all sorts of different types of backgrounds. Very, very akin to somebody being gay. They, they, they're, you know, it's just, it's everywhere. It's not, there's no kind of, you couldn't give any traits that mm. would be likely to be seen. While I feel adolescent onset gender dysphoria seems to be from a narrower group. Mm-hmm. That That's the best my hunch can come up with. But that I'm very interested in studying that and to see if, if that's true. And just to, you know, cast the net as wide as possible, is there an adult onset gender dysphoria that you are aware of? Is that, yes. Are there, do you guys know much about that or is there uh, much you can say to that? I know a little. Um, I do know that, you know, that, for example, middle-aged men are transitioning and teenage girls, and they're the two big groups, if you wanted to say, you know, and that they're such different groups. If you follow me, middle-aged men and tra- and teenage girls both want to transition. It's just so disparate. So, hmm. yeah, uh, there does seem to be some people who say, they say, maybe I want to as a child and I repressed it. Some of them say, hmm. I didn't want to, I just want to now. And it's such an, hmm. everything about gender dysphoria comes with a massive, huge sign saying, under-researched. We just oh, okay. have theories. We, we, we have theories, we have hunches, we have experience, we have anecdotes, but this is so massively under-researched that everything is an interesting question. That's yeah. my, my take on it. Mm-hmm. There's something about this topic, and very briefly, the reason I came into this topic is because yeah. I was just, I was studying activism and the way in which activism uh, shapes discourse and uh, claims authority over uh, how society should run. And I started with watching the way in which in America race relations were being agitated by a certain form of activism. And that was happening principally in colleges and uh, kind of a a subpart of that that was kind of uh, mixing up when that was uh, gender activism and was uh, transgender activism. And I I saw certain events that uh, made kind of became newsworthy where the trans activists came to the fray and started to define the terms of engagement for everybody else. And I'm like, well, what's going on here? And I was contacted by several uh, trans adults who said, I I have no desire to be represented by these people. Uh, I'm not a a anti-free speech authoritarian, uh, which is what the activists were acting like. And uh, and I just started thinking, well, what's going on here? Uh, What are these activists claiming to represent? So let me go and explore that. And, uh, you know, and then I found there was all this other stuff going on to think about and talk about. Because as you said earlier, gender is a very uh, magnetic an electric topic because it does inform a lot of what it is to have an identity and identity is something that is very politicized so there's all these different aspects to it and um, I wonder about the language that's one thing that I see is that the language really shapes the discourse in this area more than most and one thing that I saw I interviewed Lisa Littman 
who did the first study on rapid onset gender dysphoria. I think yeah. I remember that. Yeah, vaguely. I think you were. Yeah, you you were <laughs> featured on that. <laughs> and um, somebody had, uh, somebody on the internet uh, or on YouTube, another one of me on the on the YouTube. Uh, he did a breakdown or an argument against Lisa Lippman in defense of trans kids. And I, he never defined what a trans kid is. And, and I just noticed the language. I'm like, is, this, is there such a thing as a trans kid? Or is that something that we are, that we've, this category that we are putting on uh, kids? Like, what is it to be trans? Is that a natural category? Where does that come from? And when we put that on children, what, that, that's a box that, that, wow. that they assume. And it's just as, if not more, constricting than the normal, quote-unquote, uh, gender uh, roles that we put on kids. When we expect a boy uh, to, uh, boys or boys or girls belong in the kitchen, um, or, or all those uh, implicit expectations of females and males as growing up, uh, you know, feminist or classical feminism, I don't know which wave, there's several, uh, really critiques that gender assignation uh, and and uh, there's a gender critical kind of movement within feminism that resists gender nonconformity so when we assign kids the trans label that really boxes them in it seems to me do you guys have any thoughts on that or how that came about I mean I didn't ask it as a question so <laughs> just gonna throw that out there oh it's a big question um the idea of a trans child is really a new conception when you think about the big scope of human existence and how we categorize and define people. This is so new. And I think it really throws people off. And if you use the label trans child, all of a sudden you've created a special category of untouchableness in terms of how you respond to the child's requests, their self-declarations, their distress. And so, I mean, one of the things I've tried to talk about in some of my videos is that I, I think the word trans, to me, describes a set of behaviors and coping strategies. It does not describe some kind of essence about a person. To me... A trans child, which I'm hesitant to use that term because we can't predict what the developmental pathway for that child is going to be. So I'm so hesitant to throw a label on the child. But I think it, it describes the behavior of a young person who is attempting to live in the opposite sex role in order to alleviate their distress. So a young person who is claiming to be dressing as though stating that they are the opposite sex. Functionally, that's the best definition I can come up with for the quote trans child. I don't really agree with it, but that's the best it could be. But to just start saying children are trans, regardless of whether or not they're even exhibiting those behaviors to me is a very slippery slope. I don't understand how we don't get into some kind of a mental trap doing that. Stella, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think it's yeah. very tricky. I think uh, 
Benjamin, you were raising something very interesting when you asked that, because you were saying that if you are a girl and were put into box and you wear frilly dresses, you're in a box and, there, you know, maybe there might be freedom in being a non-conforming girl. If you're a trans girl, you're similarly put into a box. You're a boy who has uh, socially transitioned and therefore is expected to wear frilly dresses and stuff. And it's it's already it's already narrowing the, the child's kind of um, freedom just just be one way or be another way. I prefer the, the phrase gender non-conforming child because I think it's more open. And I think uh, I resist the phrase trans child because I, I don't think it, I think it's it, it doesn't give the child freedom to be a child. I think the most important thing a parent or an adult, a concerned adult can do for a child is make sure that the child is not making irreversible decisions. And the more we, we give a label on a child, the more that they're being brought into a narrower place. So I, I prefer the phrase gender non-conforming. I think the phrase pre-gay is quite interesting. Pre-gay? Yeah. Like before I, I, the I, gay? Yeah, because before they have sexual orientation, so pre-puberty, you people like Rupert Everett or, or um, many gay, you know, the gay actor, they were so gay as such before they uh, before they became gay, if you follow me, because they were very, very gender non-conforming. And so I, I just think it's an interesting phrase that I keep on hearing cropping up at the moment. And so I, I know a butch lesbian and she talked about and she said, basically, I was pre-gay before I realised I was a lesbian. Now, she came out as a lesbian later and girls often do. They're not. I, I, it's quite noticeable that boys get in touch with their sexual side younger and stronger. And girls seem to be much, much more nebulous. It's much more kind of hard to pin down. And their sexual feelings aren't quite so sure. So a lot of girls have a lot of crushes at 13 and 14. And they're not necessarily anything to do with sexuality. And they're everything to do with social mm. development. So there's all sorts of things about that. But I do want to say that, um, you know, identity, you know, as a as a concept. You know, in many ways it came in in the 19th century when people became very interested in their national identity. So in Ireland, people became very interested in being Irish. Nationalism as mm. a concept became very strong in the 19th century. And so who are you? I'm Irish. Mm. You know, and that's what people would beat. Mm. And it's very interesting in the 21st century, it's it's about our gender identity. I, it, it, I wonder what other identities are going to come out in you know in the future because we're just because we're fixing fixing on gender now we used to fix on our nationality it used to be everything mm -hmm. it used to be so important now it feels almost racist to bleat on about being irish yeah because it feels very <laughs> anachronistic to talk about something like that but personally as a phrase the gender critical phrase i don't i don't subscribe to it i don't consider myself gender critical i don't really like it as a phrase. I think it's very alienating as a phrase. I think it's a good description of some brilliant feminist writing. I think, you know, Kathleen Stock and Jane Claire Jones, they did such brilliant writing. They're absolutely fabulous. But as a therapist, that's certainly not my standpoint. That's not where I come in. I'm explorative, depth, psychological. There's so many other words I'd, I'd use, but none of them would be gender critical because I'm, I'm, I'm not gender critical i'm not i don't think i am that that's a really good point that uh, i'd like to open up uh about the confluence of activism within the gender discussion 
right? Uh, and and the, I I think from my perspective, it it really does come from feminist. Uh, uh, theories and feminist writing and uh, kind of the problematization and trying to break down and, uh, you know, kind of loosen up and, and give more freedom to people to express and to live lives uh, regardless or not to sex not being so deterministic within a social context. And, and then it's kind of grown up because it seems like the more freedom uh, human beings have uh, – the more anxiety uh, manifests. It seems like there, there's a lot of anxiety that comes with uh, with freedom, and and so where do where do those anxieties land on? And then we fixate on something to kind of control those anxieties. But um, this particular topic, gender as a particular topic, and transgenderism as a particular topic, both have a very uh, strong activist component in it, and a lot of theories that derive from the academic. Uh, like literally just people writing papers and uh, problematizing and thinking about this stuff. So how do you guys um, express your position uh, as therapists distinct from activism or how does how do the ideas or the theories on gender inform or don't inform your clinical practice? That's a wonderful thing to discuss because I think first and foremost – what I've realized through doing this work is that the clinical and psychological treatment of individuals has to remain somewhat separate from the activist flavor that is happening in the culture at the time. And, you know, I, I worked with a lot of people with social work backgrounds and even in the field of counseling, there was an influence of a lot of kind of activist perspectives, and I now see that those two really need to remain separate, though I think therapists have to be aware of what's happening in activism, because that will inform what patients think or do when they show up to your office. I think for me, to kind of echo something Stella mentioned, I really believe that there is a, a purpose and a meaning behind people's distress. And I think the role of the therapist and client relationship is to help the person get curious about what that distress means rather than just sticking with the surface story that they have been telling themselves. And activism is very much a surface story, isn't it? Activism says whatever a person declares about themselves must be taken at complete face value and you must not even be curious. You must not ask a question. Even if you ask a genuine question in the wrong way, it's a microaggression. I mean, there are so many elements within activism that stand in direct opposite of what I think a clinician should be doing. So first and foremost, the belief that distress and those symptoms might mean something beyond what the client thinks they mean. So that's like my kind of very groundwork assumption. And uh, we can build on that. Stella, there's a lot we can add, but where do you want to go with that? So much what you just said there reminds me of the words of Fritz Perls, the great psychologist, and he would say, you know, what's going on now? What's really going on? Mm. And that's every therapist worth their salt knows that client comes in talking about X and invariably in a couple of weeks or in a month or two, they're talking about why and why is the real problem X was the, the story, the narrative to come in, to come in the door. This happens very, very, very often in therapy. And um, it's, it's just part, it's part of the course, it's part of it. But as 
for activism and therapy. It's it's becoming quite uncomfortable when you see something that is anti-therapeutic that's happening in the wider world and you know that it's anti-therapeutic and it's being called therapeutic. For example, microaggressions would be a good example. You know, trigger warnings when they're overused and they're, they're inappropriately used. Again, safe spaces. And, you know, as a therapist, you know your stuff and you know that safe spaces are perfectly appropriate in the right context. And mm -hmm. in the wrong context, they can do an awful lot of damage. So throwing safe spaces here, there and everywhere makes people more fragile if you're not um, using them appropriately. And yet, yes, people need a safe space to talk when they have uh, in a certain context. So I, 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 while I think, yeah, we, it's not our place to be activists, it is our place to have integrity. And I think a therapist needs to kind of stand up and say what they believe and know is true and what what helps children, what helps adults, and what doesn't. And so I, I do think there is, an, uh, uh, has always been a bit of a crossover. So when Bowlby, who studied attachment theory, and he realized that like parents basically, you know, sending their kids off to the nursery and not seeing their children for, for weeks on end, or maybe for a half an hour at six o'clock every day. It was bad for the children. He realised, I have to get this word out there. I have to get it out to the general public because it will be good for the general public. I do think we therapists have some sort of moral integrity and a kind of that we have to answer for. And so there have been many scandals in therapy over the years. We haven't covered ourselves in glory. There was a great thread you did about lobotomies and what happened during the lobotomy kind of scandal. When was that? The 1960s, was it, Sasha? Yeah, the 1950s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, therapists who didn't speak up them, then shame on them. Shame mm. on them because the, our job is, you know, first do no harm. Our job is to make sure that we're not damaging people. And mm. so there is... There's an interesting moral imperative when you're a therapist, mm -hmm. and that's not to nod along to something that you think is inappropriate and damaging. Well, I want to add to that, Stella, because I think the precise problem happens when people think they are doing the right thing. Yeah. I think more often than not, all of the clinicians, like, for example, I mean, I've had two complaints against my license, one of, one of which was from someone I know personally. And I'm positive that she believes in her heart of hearts that what she is doing is the right thing to do, that affirming a child's stated gender is the right thing to do, lest you cause harm to the child. So you're right, we do have this moral imperative to integrity, but what happens when, you know, hundreds and thousands of therapists believe that this is the right thing to do? And, and this kind of leads into the question of, you know, do we perhaps have a problem in the field of psychotherapy and counseling and psychiatry insofar as we are overly reliant on diagnostic labels and the prescribed treatments for said labels? I mean, do we have a problem there? And I've heard you talk about this, Stella, and I, I think I think what we're seeing now with gender, including some of the previous scandals that you've mentioned, is a product of the fact that we have lost our ability to think a little bit more deeply about suffering. And we are so quick to put things into boxes and labels. And we, we have lost the ability to 
really slow down and and try and understand what does the symptom mean. And I say lost the ability. I should speak carefully because I'm not certain. I mean, I'm not a historian here, but I don't know if there's ever been a time where people could say with really confident certainty that if they go see a therapist, they're going to get excellent care. I mean, I don't know if that's ever been the case, but I do think right now you meet people who go to the counselor and within a, the first meeting, they want to put them on antidepressants and they barely spent more than 20 minutes with the person. I just feel like something is wrong with that. And perhaps that is a piece of the puzzle of how we got here with the affirmative care model. Yeah, it's also the private healthcare model that I'm paying for my service and I want antidepressants, so prescribe them to me. And I, I, you're my doctor, like that is in my context because I wouldn't be prescribing them, but you're my doctor, just prescribe me what I want. So it becomes kind of client and then it turns into almost customer care. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really blurred everything with the fact mm-hmm. that you're paying for it. And I, I think that's a real issue. And yeah, I do think, I think there's been a massive overdiagnosis of every condition almost. There's been diagnosis creep. And I think it's it's really damaging people. I think people very understandably think when I get the right diagnosis, everything will slot into place. And there is a certain calmness that arrives when you get a, a, an appropriate diagnosis and you didn't know what was wrong before. So it is very satisfying, but it's fleeting. It's like, oh, that gives me a little bit of a, a, a box to understand my child or to understand myself. But it's it, it feels to me that it often maybe perhaps does more damage than good. And if we could more have, I like the new creep, which is autistic traits, mm. if you follow me, mm-hmm. literacy difficulties. I prefer, even though both my children are diagnosed with dyslexia, I prefer the phrase literacy difficulties or autistic traits, as opposed to here you go, here's your diagnosis, good luck and goodbye, because people then use it as a kind of identity calling card. And I I don't think that helps anybody. I don't think serves anybody. It's so fascinating. And Stella, I believe we we spoke about that earlier. Um, In this conversation, (laughs) you talked about like people rallying around their Irish hood or their Irishness. (laughs) And now people rally around, and I don't mean this negatively, they rally around their autism. You know, like that's their... And I'm trying to think in the 20th century, because that was the 19th century, was it about individualism and freedom? And was that the kind of the 1960s? Was that what people rallied around? I'm an individual. And now are we rallying Hmm. around gender, my identity, my diagnosis? I'm just throwing that out there. I'm I'm wondering what was the identity of the 20th century? Because certainly the 19th century was very strongly you would have been saying you're an American and you would have been talking about the traits that an American has. Mm. I think that is fascinating. I really do. And Sasha, you brought up suffering and that made me think about, this this might be beyond the confines of this particular discussion, but uh, you, you talked about the historical dealing with suffering. And it just makes me think that psychologists and, uh, I guess pastors or reverends, uh, there, there's a there's a continuation. Uh, a, a conception of a very good pastor or reverend is somebody who does help the parish, the parishioners, the individuals in his congregation with their suffering. And with regards to a pastor, they have these techniques, and they're not even thought of as techniques, but they have these narratives. They have this religious 
tradition that they use and have used for centuries uh, to deal with people's uh, spiritual distress and this whole language and stuff. And then, in uh, you know, Freud comes along, Jung comes along, uh, this this uh, psychotherapy comes along and kind of takes that role up for people. Um, and it has this whole diagnosis, uh, this way of thinking about conditions as these. Uh, you know, conditions are conditions now, rather than you're just basically a soul that's you know separated from God by this thing called sin. It, it's it's interesting how there's a continuation there, but it, it's kind of broken by this rationalistic kind of veneer of psychology. Uh, I wonder if yeah. you guys have any any thoughts about. Um, your conception, to make a question out of that, your conception of what it is to be a human being and how that helps guide you in your practice. I know that's really a big question, but. Well, first, I'm just thinking about how many parallels I think there there can be between the role of a therapist and the role of some sort of a religious leader. I mean, first of all, there's the confessional aspect of it. The fact that you enter into a relationship with a stranger who is going to hold all your secrets. Mm. That is incredibly powerful. I mean, you can share very, very dark things with your therapist and they're supposed to maintain a non-judgmental attitude towards you. And that to me feels very much like a similar role a spiritual leader might hold. Um, Mm. But the conception of, you're, you're asking what does it mean to be a human being? (laughs) Really? (laughs) I feel very ill-equipped to answer this. Uh, Stella, I'm going to... I certainly certainly didn't jump in there. But I do think that, what you said there, I really do think this uh, generation are really feeling the lack of of religion. And that we're living in a post-religious age. And psychology has almost, as you said, has almost stepped in to give people a framework and uh, to give them an understanding of what is going on. Why is there pain? Why are some people so, they're so lucky and some people are so wretchedly unlucky. What is all the meaning? And religion covered so much. And when we lost religion, and we certainly did have religious identities, and I'm a Catholic, Irish Catholic, and the the concept of going into confession, saying the terrible things you've done, and then being told in a very ceremonial way, you are forgiven. Hmm. Do your penance and you are forgiven. And I remember that feeling of purity when you left the confessional box of, I am literally a pure soul. And the beauty of that literally i'm walking along the road and i am completely intact and i am completely pure that was very 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 powerful then of course you shouted somebody and you weren't so pure but for those few <laughs> minutes the, the well the, the last six hours like of the day that you went to confession it's very very powerful huge healing was taking place and it went very deep and it lasted for thousands of years because it did uh it served so much function in society and we have lost religion in many ways we've really quite sharply lost religion and I do think that instead we're kind of falling into a kind of a belief on in me Mm. as opposed to a belief in God all I've got to believe in is me and I have to put myself front and center of everything but before you put God front and center you put this idea of this life is a valley of tears and one day we'll have have happiness when we go to heaven 
that made us suffer and endure and go through a lot of suffering with the stoical kind of attitude. Now there's none of that. It's like grab your happiness because all you've got is yourself. You've got nothing else. And I don't think that has, I think it's too much for our brains. I think, wouldn't it be great to have a framework that I could just say, oh, I'm just part of that and that's the system. Great. I love it. In I go. Well, I think, I mean, on reflecting here, Stella, I'm thinking about the fact that when when all you have is yourself and also maybe there's this subconscious desire for for purity, maybe that looks a little different these days. Maybe purity isn't the right value, but maybe it's um, correctness or doing the right thing or being the most perfect version of yourself. That's also a lot of pressure. And thinking about the idea of what does it mean to be a human, at least in the context of what I try to do in therapy, is I try to help individuals integrate more aspects of themselves. So rather than this process of sin and purifying, which seems to be the kind of MO in a lot of religious systems, I try to help clients integrate and own even the dark aspects of who they are in a way that they can manage it appropriately rather than needing to be purified of it all the time. And I think when you you are just left to your own devices and you are told there's a right way to be your most authentic self, you also have a fear of like missing that opportunity or not amplifying or optimizing yourself. Yeah. And And I wonder too these days about the desire to optimize everything, faster everything, and get the most out of everything. I mean, I think clients are, they're on some sort of like a self-improvement bullet train, and you actually don't end up self-improving when you're there. So I think part of being a human in this day and age is really requiring um, a slowing down process and then accepting that there's no way to magically optimize yourself at all hours of the day all the time. I wonder if that speaks to you. It does. It does. And it, it goes against our grain, really, because we're so optimizing all the <laughs> time. I work hard. I, I try and squeeze so much in. So I feel guilty as accused is what I feel mm. when you say that. Like, I, I think we can try too hard and you lose a lot of joy. Uh, when you try too hard and there, there's just so much information coming at us and it's fascinating it's mm-hmm. just fascinating there's so many articles I want to read there's so many books and films and mm. clips that I haven't seen that I want to read it's been half my time going oh I have to read that oh I have to see this mm. and uh, yeah I think it's going to take an awful lot of mental will power to be able to stop and to be able to say I remember Oliver Berkman the writer uh, he came up with a great point which is if you want to live a kind of steady life you have to say no to things you want to do it's not Mm. enough to say no to the things you don't want to do you have to go further that you have to say no because you can't do them all so you're going to have to sacrifice some good stuff so I, I really do think I think we're really challenged at the moment with a massive amount of information it's very easy to fall into that kind of just constantly on the go and it's making us very fragile it's making us very tense I do think something you came up with earlier was a good point that reminded me of that French proverb to understand everything is to forgive everything 
And so we used to get forgiveness from from the clergy, from the church, and now we get understanding and so we forgive ourselves. That's what psychology offers us, an understanding of where we were coming from, an understanding Mm. of where our parents were coming from, and so we forgive Mm. ourselves and them. Yeah, it feels, well, that's good. At least we're moving on. We're going a bit further than I absolve you. You know what I mean? We're, we're mm. going into a deeper understanding. So there is some great things that the 21st century is giving us. But I feel we're, we've, we're giving so much freedom and we're given so much kind of information that we're a little bit all over the place. And we do. It does feel a little bit like toddlers in a playpen here with all this information. We're just throwing it at each other. Eating sand, all of that. Uh, yeah. Stuff toddlers <laughs> do. I think you... Uh, you you both did stunningly with that trick question, that way too big question, because uh, Sasha, you, you brought it down to kind of, I'm going to project a little bit here. You brought it down to what is it to be a healthy individual? Mm. What is it to be a healthy uh, person? And how does psychology, or at least the methods that you two want to explore on your podcast and that you promulgate within your practices, how does... Uh, what 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 tools do you bring to help people be healthy individuals, and maybe uh, on on the edges of that, how can we have a healthy identity? Do we do we need an identity, and what's the correct way to have an identity? Because I think that one of the things that I explore a lot is we're mismanaging this thing called identity. Um, so, where does that come in to being a healthy individual in a so society? Did well, I just make it too like big question again? There was a lot of again. different questions. <laughs> well, you asked about you asked about do we need an identity? What is a healthy identity? What tools do we bring into our podcast to help people become healthy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you absolve me at the end of uh, I will. <laughs> okay, right there. Your audience has to forgive you because they're all listening to your confession here, Benjamin. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I, I think that identity is just a natural thing that we all have. If we strip the, the common terminology that exists today about gender identity or racial identity or orientation, I think we all have an identity insofar as we relate to the world within the consciousness that exists in our physical bodies. And we have an entire history of our own life experiences that add up and continue contributing to what we know about the world and about ourselves. And that that all happens in kind of a reciprocal relationship between yourself and the world around you and yourself and the world around you. So that's how we form an identity, regardless of what, quote, labels we put on it. I think identity existed pre-concept to what we think of as an identity now. And I hope that in the podcast, what we'll be doing is by exploring these ideas, you know, going way beyond the pop psychology terminology that we see today. I mean, I hope that we can explore what does it mean to live in relation with yourself and the world around you and the people around you in the context of culture and time and place. And in that way, maybe enrich how we 
come up with our own sense of identity, maybe to go beyond just some label and pronouns. So that's what I'm hoping. Mm. Yeah. I, I kind of think that in uh, previous generations, we had a family identity. We knew where mm. we came from because my family were certain type of people. They might be hardworking, they might be funny, they might be, you know, hard party and whatever they were, but I was from that family. And then you had your religious identity and you had your national identity and people mm-hmm. kind of knew where they were coming from. And they were very solid, even if they were fighting against that identity, they were very solid in where they were coming from. And it's become so fragmented. We've become so fragmented. The family identity, many people come from divorce. So the whole family identity has is shattered in many ways. Religious identity has been shattered. National identity feels racist and feels something not something to be shouting about. Not always, but the, to bleat on about your national identity does feel a bit over the top these days. And so now people are trying to find their individual identity. And that's disregarding the fact that we are all we are all enmeshed with each other and no man is an island and we actually needed those props to form our sense mm. of self mm. and it's too fragile to try to be i am me and nobody else i am an individual it feels too lonely and i can see why children are, are grasping not just children teenagers and ad- young people and older people they're grasping at identities trying to find a sense of who am i what what am I where why what am I here for? Yeah. I think it's a really deep existential question of what is the point of me? Why am I here? What's my purpose? As you know, as a Jungian analysts like Lisa Marciano might say, you know, what is my what is my hero's journey? Mm-hmm. What is my journey? What am I here for? And I think that seems to be often what's driving a huge questioning of gender. Hopefully in the podcast we'll I'd love if we learnt loads. I'd love if we oh, get yeah. on people to interview and that we're, our minds are blown and we're thinking, oh, hadn't thought of that. Let me go and assimilate that and think about yeah. that. And hopefully we're going to add to the conversation. And I would hope we, we slow it down and we, we broaden it out mm-hmm. so that it's a, it's, it's a less combative, polarised kind of world and it's a more thoughtful, what does it mean to build a gender identity? What is gender? Where's mm-hmm. it come from and where's it going? Mm. Stella, do you want to talk a little bit about why we decided to make this podcast? Yeah, and what are what are the parameters? Could you uh, just let everybody know what what are you, what are you guys doing and why? <laughs> okay, maybe you start that, Sasha. Okay, well, we're, we're starting a podcast and it's called Gender, A Wider Lens. And the concept is that, you know, as two therapists, we are going to be talking about the concepts of gender, transition, identity, and the transgender kind of umbrella from a psychological perspective. So we we know there are lots of debates and conversations that take a political look or a cultural look, but we want to talk about it from the angle we know best, which is the psychological angle. And Stella, I love that you talked about us learning a lot, because I think the thing that, uh, to tie something back that we talked about earlier, you know, Benjamin asked, like, how do you guys call yourselves specialists or experts? And really, the the learning process is never ending. My clients teach me so mm. much. And so in the process of doing this podcast and having the, the pleasure of talking to each other and then also to our, our guests, I think there's going to be a lot of learning going on and um, hopefully our audience will be able to kind of just come along with us and get curious with us 
So I guess I started it off. What else do we need to explain? I, I think hopefully that people who are scratching the head going, what is going on here? will be able to kind of follow our episodes and say, okay, there are schools of thought. They are arguing with each other. They aren't Mm. quite at ease with each other. It's become combative and polarised. And so it feels like almost, it feels like West Side Story sometimes. It feels like a really, really kind of the, 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 you know, (laughs) an over the top kind of split has happened. Mm. And I'd love if people who listen to our our podcast realise, okay, this has happened many times in psychology before. This isn't new. Schools of thought. There was CBT and they were at war with, you know, person-centred psychology and, you know, the, the analysts certainly didn't agree with the Jungians and things like that. Freudian analysts, they, they had their issues. They had huge issues. So it's very, very common for psychology to have schools of thought that disagree quite intensely with each other. But this is the first time it's gone into the wider field that it's, it's, it's much bigger than that. It's cultures are fighting with each other that some people, they don't even know that they're, which side they're on. They don't know that they're on the side of gender identity. They just mm. know that those people over there are hateful turfs. And it, it's extraordinary how combative it is. So I would love if our gender podcast brings information to light so people go, OK, this mm. is just different thoughts and different beliefs. And people have got very, very intense about their beliefs because they think they're right. And that's OK, because actually, the more we talk about this, the better our services mm. and our understanding of gender will be. It's not it doesn't have to be war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd love yeah, that, that happen. Yeah. I think that's right, Stella. And I mean, I'm thinking about how many people I've met who have some thoughts and questions about the, the idea of gender identity, but they're really afraid to say anything. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes the most vocal critics of the gender identity movement Maybe they hold some views that people also find difficult to metabolize. And so I think what we're going to try and do is um, give the benefit of the doubt, you know, to all of these different sides, as we would do as, as therapists. You know, if a client comes to us with some outrageous claim, we are going to give them the benefit of the doubt to some degree and like, mm-hmm. let, let's hear them out. Let's see what this means. And in addition to giving people information, we we hope to give our listeners the sense that they have permission to even think about these things or to ask questions about these things and to yeah. to talk about, you know, gender identity in a more nuanced way that's not just a for or against. Yeah. Yeah, I've been... Um... It's difficult to be non-biased. It's yeah. difficult to not have an opinion. It's uh, it's difficult not to feel like you have to form an opinion. And with this topic, uh, it's really loaded, especially when you include children and you pair that with medicalization. Like there's some very strong things going on there. There's some very big consequences. And added to that, as you see with the way in which Probably both of you, but definitely Abigail Schreier and Deborah So, who have spoken to this issue, have been treated, mm. and Lisa Littman, have been treated, you, you know, you're not only walking on eggshells, you're walking on broken glass, like, or people are going to come through and smash your windows in a way. It's like, it's very charged, uh, it's very fraught, but at the same time, it's incredibly fascinating. 
and incredibly important. And it has a lot to say not only about you know this generation, uh, but really it does speak to very deep currents about the human condition. It really does. It really goes really deep into what we are and, and our society and everything like that. So there's no end of things to explore. Um, I don't think great we're freedom going to comes be able great to... anxiety. As we've said. Yeah, great choice and freedom leads to great anxiety. I guess that's something we've covered today. Yeah. But I don't think we're going to be able to make everyone happy with this podcast. We are interested in speaking to people who have an open mind and an open heart and are curious about these ideas and maybe trying to understand more. I know there's a cohort of people that have written us off based on things that we believe. And I, I'm not concerned about that audience member. I'm concerned about people who are in good faith trying to work out these ideas with us. That's what I hope too. I hope people will come and they will kind of uh, learn a lot about gender and think a lot about gender and realize that actually it's okay to have different views. What's not okay is is for people to be attacked. Mm. And, you know, I know I know there's the kind of the specter, as Benjamin said, really, of children being medicalized too soon feels very frightening and it makes everything very intense and very mm-hmm. urgent. And the sooner we speak about that and discuss it thoroughly in the media, in the newspapers, in the prime TV, the sooner we will come to better solutions around. If maybe that is the best solution, we don't know until we can discuss it and discuss it again and discuss it again in every single way. And I hope that we're adding to an open kind of discussion by having this gender podcast that we're beginning to kind of open it up a little bit like you have done Benjamin yeah you've really paved the way I think for (laughs) for so many people like myself even though you're you know a media personality you've had the most I prefer YouTube sensation but YouTube sensation that's right sensational (laughs) but I mean you have interviewed such a broad and fascinating range of people just giving them a space to tell their stories and um it's been very very valuable to have your very contribution to this discussion nobody else is really doing it like that so thanks well thank you um i'm wondering if uh well my name is benjamin boyce and uh Stella, you are from Ireland, and uh, that's where James Joyce came from. And one of his uh, <laughs> books, uh, Fit Against Wake, it <laughs> it begins at the end or it ends at the beginning. It loops around. So I'm wondering if we could river run. And congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at... Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.